I only killed one human being in Vietnam, and that was the first man that I ever killed. I was sick with guilt about killing that guy and thinking I'm going to have to do this for the next 13 months. I'm going to go crazy. And I saw a Marine step on a bouncing Betty mine. And that's when I made my deal with the devil in that I said, I will never kill another human being as long as I'm in Vietnam. However, I will waste as many gooks as I can find. I'll wax as many dinks as I can find. I'll smoke as many zips as I can find, but I ain't gonna kill anybody. You know, you turn a subject into an object. It's racism 101. It turns out to be a very necessary tool when you have children fighting your wars. Americans went to Vietnam, we thought we were the good guys. We were fighting for freedom. We were going to stop communism in its tracks. There were a lot of problems with that idea. One of the big ones, American racism. American policymakers thought that in general, Asian people didn't value individual human lives as much as Westerners did. They told each other and themselves that the South Vietnamese were too weak and lazy to be good soldiers. And to help get themselves through the horrors of war, American soldiers taught themselves to think about North Vietnamese soldiers as if they were less than human. In the very first episode of the Vietnam War, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick let some of their Vietnamese sources explain what it was like to live under a racist French colonial system. And in this episode, some Americans explained how racism helped them fight without falling apart in Vietnam. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, and you're listening to The American War, a podcast about how America lost its way in Vietnam and how Ken Burns and Lynn Novick are trying to help us find our way back. I'm back with Ken to talk about the fifth episode of their documentary. Ken, as I've watched the documentary over and over, and I've watched it a lot, one moment I keep coming back to is former Marine John Musgrave's explanation of how racism helped him deal with the brutality of the war in Vietnam by obscuring the humanity of the people he was killing. It's just, it's so uncompromising and clear in a way that I think explanations of that kind of sentiment rarely are. What was it like to hear that part of his interview for the first time? Uh, it, it, it's staggering. Uh, Lynn did the interview and brought it back. And what happens is, is that while a physical printed transcript is being created, we then select the best stuff. So you end up with a, you know, a very wide selection of John Musgrave, and you get to that. And he said, "I killed only one human being in Vietnam, and that was the first person I killed." And I was just sick about it. So you've got your attention spiked, and then he goes on as he does, to describe the pact with the devil that he had to make in order to continue doing his job, which was for the next 13 months, killing other people, and which he did, and was nearly killed himself in the process. And you begin to realize the war business, but also the very, very essential ingredients. As he says, it's racism 101, which is what you need in order to keep your young people sane going about their business, right? fighting your wars. It's, it is one of the most profound statements in the film among 
you know, 70, 78 other people with profound statements and many other profound statements by John Musgrave. It was, it, it really punched me in the gut to see the honesty and the directness and how clean it is. You know, even the subsequent comment that he's going to make a little bit while later about not taking any prisoners, which is almost as, as, as startling, as chilling as, as the other one. It's just, it is so clean and so clear about what the calculus of war is about. I wanted to flash back a little bit because you and I have had a lot of conversations about race in your work. But I was wondering, you know, from your own memories of the Vietnam War, did you have a sense that race was playing a role either in why the U.S. was there or in the conduct of the war sort of at the time? Or is that something that sort of became part of your awareness of the war later? It became mostly uh, much, much later. I mean, certainly I was painfully aware of the dynamic of race in the United States, and I was certainly aware of the way it manifested in popular culture at the time, particularly with Muhammad Ali's uh, refusal to accept induction, uh, and that became part of the rallying cry of the the counterculture. Um, But it was uh, I think first initially through popular culture and in things like Apocalypse Now and, and you you know, he sails up the river to that point where he finds completely made up, never happened, nobody took drugs out in combat. Uh, the drugged out, mostly African American crew. Uh, later some of the dynamics within uh, platoon uh, that were a little ham handed and heavy handed, but nonetheless, you know, brought that home. Uh, my future sort of finding out as I began to who I was and what I wanted to do with my life and that it would entail not just film at age 12 but documentary at age 19 and history by 22, that um, race was going to be a big dynamic in this, was going to be a huge part of the story of the United States that I was going to tell. And so there was zero surprise that we would have that as an important component in our film. Well, and again, you and I have talked about this a lot. We've been in Charleston. Well, you and Henry Louis Gates have been talking about this. But I realize I never asked you, what is sort of the origin story for your realization that race is the big part of the American story that you want to tell? Is there a project or a moment? Well, for me, it goes back to uh, in the years leading up to my mom's death in April 65, I was quite anxious and couldn't sleep and had lots of stomach aches and things like that. And I remember once uh, watching with my parents uh, in 62 or 63 the dogs and the fire hoses in Selma. And I found it super interesting, and I was very curious about it. And the little boy in me was, you know, it was war. But when I got to bed that night, I couldn't sleep, and I was worried that I was going to throw up, and I realized that it, later that a lot of that had to do with the cancer that was killing my country and the cancer that was killing my family had been sort of merged. And there were other instances. I spoke about it in my Jefferson lecture last year about our a few years before that about leaving Newark, Delaware, and leaving our cleaning lady, Mrs. Jennings, who had been much more than that, a kind of surrogate mother when my mother was in the hospital a lot. And then she was the last, you know, goodbye we did after we loaded up the car we went to see her and we were sitting in the back of a rented station wagon and she came in to lean in to give me a kiss and I wouldn't let her do it and she understood 
she understood. And my dad, you know, drove off and got about a mile or half a mile and just pulled over. And he said, young man, I am so disappointed in you. And so, you know, this has been in my bloodstream. I, you know, it continues to this day where I keep, as you know, next to my desk, a set of ankle chains of a slave, a piece of iron who has only one purpose in the United States of America, founded on the idea that all men are created equal to keep other people owned, you know? And so I don't know where it coalesced, uh, but it's manifested itself. To come back to John Musgrave, do you think racism was critical to the conduct and misconduct of the war, or was it sort of a factor in a larger miscalculation? I, I mean, it's always an important thing, the demonization of the enemy, as he, as he would describe it, um, permits things to happen. But this is as old as war itself, and we tried to. We really struggled, particularly when Milai came, with just the right calibration of language to understand that the, the deaths of civilians in war is not, you know, new. And yet, in Vietnam, it, while it wasn't policy, it wasn't an aberration either. And, and I would like to just also put a big, gigantic asterisk, because the intimacy of the killings, say, at My Lai, not to just belittle that, because there are lots of them, and some committed by the enemy and some by us, but also the, the way in which human beings somehow comfortably abstract killing people from an airplane with a bomb from that. I mean, because more people died... Uh, you know, there are a lot of millions of Germans and Japanese that are no longer with us, civilians killed by us, that we don't even have a second thought about. And we're actually, with Vietnam, slightly more painfully aware of the human cost from bombing, but not so much. We, we're we're going to focus on these individual acts of the Callies and the Medinas rather than the systemic act of governments. And I'm not doing this to condemn the United States government. I'm just saying this is a feature of all wars that there is just a, it is a priori a, a, a nature of war to be disinterested in civilian loss of life. It's interesting that we're in a military dynamic now in which that is, is one of the things up with which the military will not put, you know, which is the loss of civilian life. And they're struggling mightily hard uh, to hit their targets. And still we read about drones you blowing up a wedding party and not an Al-Qaeda party. Racism helped make combat more abstract and thus more manageable for some American soldiers. But did bigotry play a role in larger policy miscalculations? Did it make Americans underestimate the severity of the Buddhist crisis, for example? Or did racism prevent Lyndon Johnson from understanding his enemy? After all, he once said, foreigners are not like the folks I'm used to. It's one thing to miss the complicated internal dynamics of another country. It's another to misunderstand because your ideas about race prevent you from seeing any complexity at all. When it came to Vietnam, American policymakers were definitely ignorant. But whether they made important decisions out of racism is a more complicated question. I don't think this had all that much to do with ignorance of Vietnamese culture and history. It's a, it's a standard view. In fact, I'm probably one of the few historians to, I think, argue against it. That's Frederick Logval again. We spoke with him in the first episode of this podcast. He's a professor at Harvard, and he wrote one of my favorite books about Vietnam, Embers of War. He was also an advisor on the documentary. I brought him back for this episode because he studied the way American policymakers approached the Vietnam War. He differs from Ken on this a little bit. He thinks Americans had at least some sense of Vietnamese culture. 
but clearly they didn't know enough to be aware of what they were getting into when they went to war in Vietnam. I don't mean to say that somehow Robert McNamara or, you know, Richard Nixon or Henry Kissinger were experts on Vietnamese culture and history. They certainly weren't. In fact, they were largely ignorant of the country. I just don't think that it mattered that much because uh, one of the things that I've determined in my research is that they knew very well uh, the obstacles. They understood very well that they faced formidable obstacles to victory. They understood that they had a very weak South Vietnamese government that was riven by infighting. They understood that the South Vietnamese military, the so-called Arvin Army of the Republic of Vietnam, was pretty much a weak reed on which to try to fight. They understood that this was an alien environment that was difficult to fight in, to say the least. Um, and they understood that, you know, the North Vietnamese had important backing from the Chinese, who were right across the frontier, and that they had backing also to a lesser extent from the Soviet Union. And so, yeah, I think that um, they, were, they lacked knowledge of this place. But they understood more than that line of argument suggests, I guess I would say. To put it a different way, do you think that their, the American sort of preferences and decision calculuses were weighted by cultural and racial questions? Were they just more comfortable dealing with Vietnamese Catholics? And did they underestimate northern troops because of ideas about Asianness? Um, to a degree, I guess. I'll, I'll, I'll go part of the way to suggesting that those issues... Um, mattered. Um, they were more comfortable with Vietnamese Catholics. I think that was one reason they stuck with No Dinh Diem for as long as they did. Um, but, uh, and I think in terms of the conduct of the war, race and racism uh, factored in, which is a separate issue we could pursue if you want. But I will come back to saying that, you know, they respected from an early point, most of them, the fighting ability of the Vietnamese. And so there was, I think, both on the part of most um, officials and on the part of American uh, you know, soldiers and Marines, and, um, a respect for the adversary that you see from a pretty early point. Um, and that would, for me at least, lessen the importance that I would attach to 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 racism in that sense. Um, you did mention the conduct of the war, and I would be interested in going down that path. Uh, my sense is um, that there was a dehumanizing um, element to how commanders, American uh, commanders, uh, proceeded. Uh, there was, I think, a sense that um, you know there was a a sense that, that somehow you were dealing with um, Vietnamese people, often referred to as gooks, who didn't put the same value on life uh, as Americans would, 
for example, and therefore we can fight the war differently. And there was probably less of a concern uh, about um, about um, what is euphemistically called collateral damage in more recent uh, language uh, than there would have been perhaps otherwise. Um, that's a pretty poor answer to your question. But I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'm even there, I come back to a sense that so many came to have, including veterans who have spoken in my classes. To a person, I think, Alyssa, they have said, I, had, I came to have such respect uh, for Charlie, or I came to have such respect for the, for the, for the enemy and for their willingness to, to, to go to, these ex, to this extent to defeat us. Um, I mean, that's the sort of takeaway that I have more than maybe anything else. It does seem to a certain extent like individual soldiers feel that racism became a tool that allowed them to be more effective as soldiers. And one of the things that to me comes across a lot in the movie is individual soldiers grappling with that. How do you think American audiences will react to that? Because, you know, obviously the orthodox history and public opinion suggests that this was a war that was not winnable, that we should not have fought, and that degraded us nationally. But is it harder to talk about how the war might have degraded us on a personal and individual level? Mm. Well, this is so interesting because you've seen you've seen the film, or at least a chunk of the film. I've seen, uh, you've all, seen of all of it. So you've seen this in a in a in an iteration that I haven't seen. I do think that um, the war, and maybe this is what the film shows, is that there is, on the one hand, this this um, still I think broad consensus, with some exceptions. But a broad consensus, I think, among scholars, among journalists, among ordinary, uh, interested Americans, that this thing was a mistake, uh, that this was not a war that should have been fought. You have a so-called revisionist point of view, which says that it was the right war, it should have been fought, and it could have been won, but I think that's still a minority position. Um, But alongside this is a sense, I think you're suggesting, or that the film suggests, that for at least some Americans who fought, it had a um, it had this dehumanizing uh, dimension to it, and that it made it easier for them, for Americans in the field, to fight this thing day after day, even as they were beginning to question the purpose of the thing. Why am I here? What am I doing here, getting shot at day after day? If they could view the enemy, if they could view the Vietnamese, both the, both the Viet Cong and also the North Vietnamese, the so-called NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, uh, as something other than, than, you know, fully human. When we think about the 1960s and race, we usually think about the civil rights movement, and for good reason. But it's important to remember that race was a part of the story in Vietnam, too. It made Americans overestimate our importance, and it gave soldiers the tools they needed to kill in an increasingly brutal and draining war. Ugly ideas about how to conduct the war in Vietnam weren't always made public. But as photos of what Americans were doing in Vietnam began to appear in newspapers and on TV, the United States had to ask, what kind of war had we gotten into? Thank you.
Next time on The American War, we'll talk about the sixth episode and about the photo that changed the course of the conflict. Thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this, please take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Share with friends and family, and find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. The American War is produced by Carol Alderman and Adriana Ucero with art direction from Chris Rucan. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg. This is The American War. If you like The American War, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.